This summer has been a journey through the Psalms. We've spent the month of June and the month of July trekking through these Psalms, and it's been quite a journey. We've been doing this as a team, a handful of pastors and elders, as Ross, our senior pastor, is on sabbatical, and today, the last Sunday in July, is our last Psalm. So thank you for being on this journey with us. Uh, beginning next month in August, we will begin a series in Jonah. And that will be the final month of Ross's sabbatical, and then he'll be back in September. So be praying for him, uh, be praying for our church, uh, and it's just a privilege to serve alongside of you. So thank you for being here this morning. Not having grown up in East Texas, but rather in North Texas, the only thing I could tell you about a mole... That small furry mammal, not the pigmented spot on our skins. The only thing I could tell you about a mole was it was blind and it lived underground somewhere. Now that I live in East Texas, I can tell you exactly where it lives. <laughs> they are all over the place. Uh, and they might be blind, but they're stealthy and they're destructive. And I do not like them. So the first time a mole invaded my yard, I didn't know what was going on. There's just these raised ridges all over the place, and I'm thinking, what is this? After I finally figured out it was a mole, I called a, a, a pest control company. They came, and what they did was they set up traps all over the place. Uh, my yard was literally littered with traps for months, and they would rotate these traps in different spots. They would strategically place the trap partially inside the tunnel, and leaving a part of it exposed. Uh, and they would flag these traps so that we people wouldn't step on them inadvertently. Now to the mole, it didn't matter if the, the trap was flagged or not. Again, moles are blind. They're just going to walk through their tunnels and Snap. Now this image of traps littered across my yard with flags. Believe it or not, this is a sobering picture of the reality you and I face on a daily basis as Christians. As Christians, nearly every waking moment, we come face to face with the choice to give in to temptation and choose to sin, or to struggle against that temptation and that sin and honor God with our lives. We face this very real pressure, both internally in our heart, but also externally around us. Internally, we deal with these sinful desires that Paul calls the flesh. Now, these, these sinful desires are at war with our godly desires. These godly desires stem from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this internal struggle we have to, to give in to the, the flesh, these sinful desires that tempt us, that entice us, or to struggle against them and put them to death and choose to walk in the Spirit, giving in to those godly desires. It's not just an internal struggle, though, is it? Externally, in this fallen, broken world, world, we are surrounded by temptations, even encouraged to give in to them. Our lives abound with opportunities to sin. 
Society encourages, embrace what feels good. Do what's best for you. And sometimes we're tempted to believe this lie that we're free from God's holy authority and we're free from consequences. You see, traps litter our lives. And even though we are not blind like the hapless mole, we who have trusted in Christ, we are born again. We have eyes to see sin for what it is. We've been united with Christ and dwelt by the Spirit. We now have godly desires. Our heart has been circumcised. We have a choice to give in or to walk in the Spirit. So if the traps are there, and they are, and we have this internal struggle within and without, what do we do? How do we as followers of Jesus navigate so that we are not stepping on these traps, that we're not giving in to temptation and sin? How do we avoid the tempting traps of sin? And they are traps. How do we avoid them? Something that the world promises will feel good, and it might temporarily. It'll be fun, and it might in the moment. But in the end, like all traps, it leads to death and destruction. So how do we navigate these? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 141. Psalm 141 is a psalm of David. It is a personal lament, crying out to God, asking for God's help as he struggles with both the internal and the external struggle to give in to temptation, to choose to sin, stemming from his sinful heart and from the sinful community that surrounds him. As we traverse our psalm, as we, as we look at David's lament, as he faces this same reality that you and I face, navigating these traps. We're going to learn how to avoid sin's temptation, these traps. And we're going to do it by talking about the reality of temptation. We all know it's real, but we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about temptation. Next, we're going to talk about the believer's sources for help. We're not in this alone. We have help. And then finally, we're going to talk about the unavoidable consequences for a believer embracing a sinful lifestyle, for stepping in the trap and being ensnared by it. There's consequences. So temptations pull, our help, and sin's consequences. That's how we're going to break this psalm up today. So let's talk about temptation, our first point. What I want you to hear from me is this. We are all susceptible to the unrelenting pull of temptation. Not one of us is immune. We are all susceptible to the unrelenting pull of temptation. And David exemplifies this reality for us in verses 1 through 4. So read with me Psalm 141 verses 1 through 4. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you in the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to evil. 
to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let me not hear of their, or let me not eat of their delicacies. So this internal struggle, it's striking. It just jumps off the page. It's, it's a deeply personal, reflective recounting of a moment he was tempted, perhaps a season in which he was tempted. And this is David, a man after God's own heart. And it shows us that no matter if you're a king or here in Tyler, that you're in an environment that is not a lab in which you can control everything. This is a broken, fallen world in which a great battle is waging, a spiritual battle between good and evil. You might not see it, but you can feel it. Consequently, the believer's moral struggle against sin is relentless because the battle is relentless until the Lord Jesus returns. Listen to how one scholarly work sums up the biblical authors as a whole. If you were to take the biblical authors as a whole, their view on the believer's struggle with temptation. I'm going to read you this. For believers living in a fallen world, life at every moment is at a transcendent crisis in which a person's allegiance is claimed by God and yet counterclaimed by Satan and evil. The wisdom literature motif of the two paths or the two ways, that of the righteous and that of the wicked, sums it up. The temptation stories of the Bible, moreover, send the message that the power and attraction of evil are great, not minor. The power and attraction of evil are great, not minor. So David in verses 1 through 4 testifies to this reality of his allegiance being tested and his attraction to evil being great. Notice David doesn't specify his circumstances. We don't know the specifics of the temptation or the sin. But that's exactly the point of the Psalms, brothers and sisters, is we can jump into this Psalm today and it's very real for us. Our very great crisis that each of us encounters on a daily basis of demonstrating who or what we are faithful to. That's real. It doesn't happen occasionally. It happens all the time. This reality means, in some ways, moment to moment, we are at a watershed moment. Am I going to demonstrate my faithfulness and my loyalty to the Lord by walking in the Spirit, honoring Him, continuing my struggle against sin and temptation, or am I going to give in and choose to honor that great and powerful force within me that I feel and that a part of me really wants to do? Now hear me, I'm not talking about the security of the believer. I'm not talking about how we are saved. It's always by grace through faith. Once you're saved, you're always saved. We firmly behold that a believer, we firmly hold that a believer having trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, at that moment is indwelt by the Spirit, forever united to Christ, forever a child of God. And nothing can change that. Your positional righteousness in Christ is secure. It never changes. But now that we are positionally righteous in Christ, we are growing 
in that righteousness. Not to be right with God. You're already right with God. But to be more like Christ. To grow more like Christ. It's a practical growth that God in His Spirit is leading you to embrace. To choose not to succumb to the evil within. And no matter how old you get, that pull doesn't go away. But your desire to struggle against it and to choose God does grow. So the pull is real and our decision to act is ours. Think of a time in your own life when you faced such a choice to choose sin or to honor God. Inside your heart and your mind at that moment, there was a war raging. In my life, I struggle with the flesh in all the same ways you struggle with the flesh. That's what Paul calls it, calls it the flesh, and it never goes away until either you die and are with the Lord or the Lord returns. The flesh is essentially self-centeredness. It can be defined as self-preservation, self-sufficiency, and self-glory. Self, 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 me, me, me. Now, I might be a pastor, but I'm still broken. I'm a broken person, just like every one of you. And I need desperately God's sanctifying grace at work in my life. And I praise Him for it. And just like you, I'm operating in this same spiritual plane where I am susceptible to temptation. Now, I might have shared this illustration already, but it's one that's very memorable to me because it was right after Nancy and I got married. We've been married 10 years, but I remember this as if it was yesterday. We had just moved into our apartment, and we were busy in our own little corners, doing our own little thing, putting pictures up or unpacking dishes, whatever it might have been. But my wife was focused on arranging all of our family photos just how she wanted them on a bookshelf. She's an engineer, so for her it made perfect sense having squares and rectangles and circles and everything kind of clumped together, and she loved it. I walk up to the bookshelf, and I, without asking, start changing the arrangement based on how I think it should go. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think we had just moved in like that day or the day before. This was our first fight, entirely my fault entirely. But what it showed me was just how self-centered I am. And until I got married, I was able to kind of, I don't know, work around it to a degree. But when you're living with someone, your self-centeredness can't hide. And I hurt her. And she let me hear about it, rightfully so. And I was, I was shocked and appalled by just how self-centered I was. And that struggle with self-centeredness hasn't gone away, and it's manifested itself in ways beyond rearranging picture frames. I mean, come on. But it's very real. The struggle is very real. So David, likewise, he's showing us this struggle. And in verses 3 and 4, he highlights his battle to control the tongue. And to not give in to the sinful impulses of the heart. The tongue and the heart. Those are the two that he highlights. Read with me verses 3 and 4 again. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to evil. To busy myself with wicked deeds in the company with men who work iniquity. 
and let me not eat their delicacies. So as we wrap up this first point on the reality of temptation, that no one is immune, it's an unrelenting pull, realize it's no small matter. It is no small matter. It's not something you can avoid. It's not something you can downplay. It's not something you can reason with. We are all susceptible to temptation's unrelenting pull to choose sin. Why? Because the flesh is alive and well in each of us. Moving to our second point. What help do we have in this struggle against temptation? We're going to see first that our source of help is God. First and foremost, God is there to help us. And we're going to see David cry out to God, and we see that. We see that in verses 1 through 4. Specifically in 1 through 2, David cries out to God. It's not just this little, hey God, I need your help. No, I mean, he's, he's pulling on the hem of God's robe. Help me. Read with me verses 1 and 2 as we see the urgency of David's call. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Do you see the urgency in David's plea to God? Those words in verse 1, hasten, and give ear. In the Hebrew, those are imperatives. Those are commands. He is overwhelmed with this pull. And he's begging God to come to his aid. To hasten and to give ear. To help him. David is not ignoring this reality or downplaying its severity. He is earnestly imploring God, come to my help now. Please. How do we respond when we feel that unrelenting pull to sin? When we feel the temptation within? Do we ignore it? So often we do. Do we downplay it? I've got this. It's not that hard. Or do we earnestly seek God in the moment for help? This week at home or at work, I want you to try something. It's something that I put into practice, having studied this psalm all week, and I encourage you to give it a shot too. When you sense in your heart that temptation, that battle waging within, when you sense it in that moment, cry out to God. It can just be in your heart, but cry out to Him, Lord, I want to say something really hurtful, or I want to do something I know I shouldn't do. I feel the pull. Help me. Please help me, God. Hasten. God will not leave you hanging. He's not going to let you waller in your temptation. Practice inviting God right into the middle of your struggle. In September, we're going to roll out a new group of men's discipleship groups, okay? We did this last year. We're going to do this again. These are men's discipleship groups designed to Help you grow as a disciple, but also equip you to make others into disciples. 
And part of that curriculum over nine months is we, we memorize scripture, we meditate on scripture, we talk about scripture, some key scriptures. One of those scriptures is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it's very applicable to what David is doing, crying out to God in the moment that he senses that temptation, not wanting to give in to the struggle. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, God is just. He never tempts. It's not what he does. He never tempts us. Sin and Satan tempt. God is also faithful. That means when he allows the temptation into your life, into my life, it's in order to train us. It's for good purposes. He's training us just how sinful we really are. That yes, you would think about doing that. That you would even partly want to do that. To show your incredible need for his grace, but also teach you how to reject that pull how to reject sin and continue to struggle against it in the power of the Spirit and learn to walk toward Christ, being led by the Spirit, escaping the snare of sin and growing. We grow in this process of struggling against sin and the power of the Spirit and learning to find that way of escape and actually wanting to take it and taking it. It's a process. We're all in process, and God is faithful. He's with us every step of the way. So looking back at this text, Psalm 141, notice in verse 2 that David likens his prayer to God as worship. This is worship. We see the words incense. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands, that's, that's a form of prayer as the evening sacrifice. By way of this comparison, what David is illustrating for us, what he's telling us, is there's this inseparable link between our worship of God and our walk with God. They go together. Our worship with God and our walk with God, they fuel one another. So looking now at verse 4, we see David hone in a little bit more on the reality of how we view sin when we're tempted. Verse 4, he describes eat of their delicacies. If David was to participate in this sin with these others, he's seeing it from afar as eating delicacies. It's tempting to him. This scene of eating delicacies, what it's doing figuratively is it's describing for us the supposed enjoyment of sin and even the benefits that a sinful choice or a sinful lifestyle provide for us. It's like eating delicacies. It's, it's delicious in the moment. It's very appealing to us. It's inviting. What does this teach us? David's assessment of temptation and sin, what does this teach us about ourselves? It shows us that we have a faulty judgment. We do. We think we can rationalize and reason accurately. We can't. 
We're broken, we're fallen. We can rationalize and reason in a measurable way. But just based on the fact that we could look at a sinful choice and say, man, that looks pretty good. That tells us our judgment is off. The struggle is real and we desperately need God. Something else that I find surprising here in verse 4 is, did you catch that David seems to be asking for help against peer pressure? David is suffering from peer pressure. King David. His peers were pressuring him to join in the fun. Now, I don't think we outgrow peer pressure. But I do know for young people, it's especially burdensome. And if you are a younger person who's struggling against this pull to join in their sinful behavior, it's not worth it. There's no payout. It only takes, it never gives. Sin never, ever grants life. It promises life, but it never grants it. It only demands it. That's why David in our psalm is crying out for help. Because he knows this. And he knows he needs God's help. He knows he needs God's help. And he knows that those delicacies are really just a trap. Just like a piece of cheese on a trap. That's all it is. So by this point in David's life, he's tasted of the delicacies enough time to know what sin really is. A death trap to be avoided at all costs. Because of this knowledge, he's crying out to God, don't let me succumb, help me. I want to walk with you on a different path. But David did not only cry out to God, okay? There are multiple sources for help. God's one. Implicitly, Scripture is another. I mean, we're a Bible church. We believe God's Word is inspired, inerrant, authoritative. It's what we stand on. It's what we go to, to learn and grow. But in our psalm, explicitly, the, the other source of help that David looked to is God's people. God's people. He looked to God, and then he looked to God's people. That's our second source of help that we are to depend on as we navigate the perils, the tempting traps of sin. Read with me verse 5, where we'll see this. Verse 5, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Who doesn't love accountability? I mean, I'd say it's right up there with our passion for public speaking. Like we just flock to accountability, don't we? <laughs> David even compares it to a slap in the face. I think another comparison is, it's like a deep tissue massage. Man, those hurt. Oh my goodness. They hurt, hurt, hurt in the moment. But later on, they provide what? Relief. They provide relief. That's exactly what I needed. It hurt. It's painful, but I got relief. David knew this. He knew it was like a slap in the face and it would hurt, but he also knew its results. Relief. Sin brings what immediately? It brings pleasure. And then what does it bring? It brings pain. Accountability brings what immediately? Pain. And then what does it bring? Pleasure. Whatever you choose, you're going to get pain and pleasure 
difference is one is lasting. The pleasure is lasting for accountability. And if you stay in that sinful lifestyle, then that pain is also lasting. So our value of being in Christian community is great. There's value for accountability. One thing we gain with Christian community through welcoming a rebuke is you get to take your mask off and be who you really are. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to fake it. You get to really let down your guard and let somebody in. Church in general is not supposed to be a place where you act perfect because church is not for perfect people. It's a place filled with broken people struggling against sin and wanting to grow or or at least wanting to want to grow. I want to want to grow. Sometimes, however, we fall into that lie that no one else is struggling but me. I'm the only one struggling. All these other people got it figured out. It's not true. It's not true. And if you seek and find genuine Christian community, which includes accountability, it allows you to open up. It allows you to share your struggles, share your burdens, so that faithful brothers and sisters can pray for you, encourage you, and hold you accountable to grow. Also beginning in September, we're relaunching life groups. Okay, life groups are an essential part of Bethel. I'm thankful to be part of a life group where I don't have to wear a mask. I can be who I really am. I can share my struggles with these men. And they know. They know how I'm doing based on their questions that I let them ask and that I truthfully answer. They dig into my life. Now, it's a challenge to go on Thursday evenings to my life group. It's a challenge. I'm busy. I'm tired. I'm stressed. But every time I go, I return home feeling lighter, feeling refreshed, feeling thankful. Refreshment. David understands this about accountability. He uses an image that communicates for us refreshment when you have someone in your life that will hold you accountable. He describes it in verse 5 as oil for my head. Now in the ancient Near East, this was a picture of refreshment, by way of accountability, rebuke, constructive criticism, correction, reproof, truth, in love, but for a very good purpose to help you grow. Refreshment is something we all crave, and it seems very counterintuitive to find it through accountability, but that's exactly what God's Word is telling us. We often look for refreshment in things that bring what? Relaxation. Comfort. Now, that's, that's good for certain instances in your life, but not if you want to grow. Not if you want to avoid the tempting traps that litter your life called sin. So how does this work? How am I refreshed through constructive criticism, through someone in my life or some people in my life that hold me accountable? It's these types of friends with their honesty, with their encouragement, that they prevent me from being ensnared in sinful habits. They prevent me from being ensnared in a sinful lifestyle. And that 
brings refreshment because there are very real consequences for being ensnared by sin. And this moves us to our final point. What are these consequences? Why are they traps? So, so far we've talked about the reality of temptation. It's there. It's a great battle. You feel it in your heart, in your mind, and you see it all around you. And it pulls on you. You strangely really want to do what it's asking you to do and telling you is okay to do. That's the flesh. And then we have a way of escape. God, he always provides a way out. We just have to want to take it. And then we have God's people who spur us on to godly character. This is what God provides for us, the aid to avoid the traps. Let's talk about the consequences, though. If you allow yourself, if you choose to be ensnared by sinful habits, sinful lifestyle, which is a trap. Read with me verses 6 through 7. We're going to look at the first consequence here. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Now, I've been studying this all week, and you just read it perhaps for the first time this week, this morning. If it's difficult for you to understand, that's because it's very difficult for any Hebrew scholar to understand. The Hebrew itself in verses 6 and 7 are difficult to understand. But what we do know about these verses, what is clear, is we see judgment is certain for those who embrace a sinful lifestyle. We see this with this picture being thrown over the cliff. Now that's an image, it's figurative, but it still communicates this reality of judgment for sin because God is holy. And second, God will vindicate those who do not embrace a sinful lifestyle. So that's a positive consequence for not embracing sin is God will vindicate you. Basically, he'll say in some way, shape, or form in your life now or at some point later that your choice to continue to struggle against sin was good and right. And we see this vindication in verse 6 with this strange picture of these bones and this breaking up of earth, this plowing. Then they shall hear my words. Excuse me, I jumped ahead. Verse 6, then they shall hear my words for they are pleasant. Meaning this is the vindication. If you refuse to give in to that temptation, in some way, shape, or form, your lifestyle will be proven to be the wise choice. You choosing to walk with God in the long run will prove to be the right decision. It's right to walk with God. It's right to refuse peer pressure to sin. And what we see is the struggle against peer pressure has its own effects upon the believer. It's not just this theoretical pressure. It's this real pressure upon you. It's their persistent attacks. And that's the, the strange metaphorical picture we see here with the bones being scattered about like dirt in verse 7. It's dug up and tossed aside. A believer who is resisting temptation but being bombarded by it through peer pressure, the image we see here is you feel discarded. You feel so unwanted by that group, despised by that group. They cut you off. 
totally discard you. And that's this picture, this strange picture in verse 7 of how David feels in the midst of this pull by his peers, whoever they are, to engage in whatever sinful behavior that looks appealing to him. So if you're a believer who's here this morning and you're suffering at the hands of these sinners, your, your pain is real. What they're doing to you hurts. But don't give in. Even if you feel discarded by them, don't give in. God will vindicate you. At some point, your decision to embrace the Spirit, to walk in Him, it will be proven to be the wise, the good, and the beautiful choice. And if you're a believer here this morning on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, maybe not the one doing the peer pressure, but you're actively engaged in a sinful habit or behavior, now hear me, with little or no desire to change, or little or no struggle to resist. You just, because you don't think God cares, or you don't think it's a big deal, and you're not fighting against it at all. And hear David's words this morning as oil for your head. It might feel like a slap in the face, but God will not be mocked. We reap what we sow. He is holy. He's called us to live a holy life. And this judgment for the believer comes in the form of discipline. Discipline. All designed to grow us. All designed to teach us, to train us. How to say no to sin, why to say no to sin, how to say yes to God, why to say yes to God. It's a process that we're all in. Read with me verses 8 through 10. Here we're going to close out our final point as we see David pledge his loyalty to God. In the midst of this struggle, he's going to pledge his loyalty to God over sin. He's going to ask for God's help one more time in the form of protection and guidance. All so that he can avoid sin and its consequences. Which here we finally see David describe it as a trap. Verses 8 through 10. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. It's his loyalty. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me. And from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. In verses 9 and 10 here, we see David describe for us the consequences of willfully embracing sin. In verse 9, this lifestyle he calls a trap. Also in verse 9, he calls it a snare. And then in verse 10, he calls it a net. These images, a trap, a snare, a net, they're used all throughout the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, all to communicate the immoral person's inevitable punishment. Now, for the believer, again, positionally righteous in Christ, the consequences for embracing immorality come in the form of discipline, to be trained. But if we refuse God's discipline, If we refuse to be trained by God, then we can expect the natural consequences of sin. No one is immune to the consequences of sin. Here's how the Bible describes these natural consequences of sin for the believer. Blinding us, weighing us down, making us vulnerable and weak, 
and eventually leading to our own self-destruction. That's what you can expect when you willfully allow yourself to be ensnared by sin. So in light of all this that we've seen from Psalm 141, as followers of Jesus, how do we avoid these tempting traps that litter our life, that want to ensnare us, lead us to self-destruction? Admit your need. Admit that you, you need help. Admit that temptation's pull on your life is very real. So admit your need. And then ask for help. Ask God. Ask a trustworthy brother or sister. So if I was just to sum it up, how do we avoid these traps? Admit your need and ask for help. Ask God and ask others. And you will, as David shows us in verse 10, by doing this in process, not perfectly, over time, you will learn to pass by sin's traps safely. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth, which guides us, and leads us, gives us knowledge and wisdom and insight. Thank you for Psalm 141 that teaches us that you're there always to help us. I pray that you would train our hearts to cry out to you for help in the moment, Lord. Grow us in that. Give us eyes to see our own sinful ways and the consequences for embracing them. Lead us, Lord, may, be, may we be willing to be led. Give us trustworthy friends, God, that are willing to share truth with us. We pray that you would bless our church in this manner. I thank you for your great love for us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.